This is The 966, the podcast that focuses on all things Saudi Arabia from the two guys who produce the most widely read daily newsletter on the kingdom. This week, we'll be talking about the upcoming Formula One Grand Prix in Jeddah, the puzzle of U.S.-Saudi ties, the Tadawul hitting a 15-year high, and the rising cost of solar in Saudi Arabia. But first, before we get into it, if you haven't subscribed yet, uh, you can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and more. Thank you to everybody who has already subscribed. We really appreciate it. We love all the feedback we're getting as well. We just launched a Twitter account at 966podcast, so send us a tweet if you want to weigh in, or email us, the966podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also listen to all of our previous episodes at the show's webpage, 966.transistor.fm. Richard, let's get to it. What's your one big thing? Uh, one big thing is yes, everybody listen to Lucian and, and tune in. Um, no, one big thing. So the, uh, UN, uh, framework convention on climate change is, is holding its, um, 26 conference of parties, uh, gathering in Glasgow starting October 31st, going for two weeks. Just noticed a BBC article, um, that apparently got access to, uh, and 32,000 submissions. Uh, so they, these were leaked submissions from government, uh, corporations and other entities to the COP um, or the UN con uh, Convention on Climate Change. And the reason I thought this was interesting is you and I have talked about the, the global uh, energy conversion and, and the things that need to be done, the pace at which would be ideal, the pace that might be possible. And I was struck uh, by this article, because typically we think about fossil fuels saying, you know, hold, hold, hold your horses. Um, but among this group, uh, and I want to pull this up a little bit, uh, among this, uh, the complaints, submissions, and said 32,000, I said, but so for example, Saudi Arabia, Japan, and Australia, all concerned about the pace being called for. They'd like to slow it down. Uh, and you see some of that in the, in the energy crunch we see now in natural gas and, and, and you know, trying to make up the, the shortage in natural gas. You see coal plants coming back online, that sort of thing. Uh, Australia, India, basically saying coal is going to have to be part of our energy mix for some time to come. We need more time. Uh, Saudi, Argentina, Norway, all saying, look, let's make carbon capture and storage uh, an accepted part of our all the mitigating measures. Uh, and we've mentioned in the past, one of the interesting things coming out of the G20 in, in Riyadh was the G20 endorsement of a circular carbon economy, which was something that was important to Saudi Arabia. But then we get into, we get into uh, even off farther afield, you know, Brazil and Argentina questioning findings about the greenhouse emissions from food. Of course, they're huge beef producers. Uh, Switzerland questioning whether developing countries need to foot the bill for for. Uh, uh, I mean, whether developed countries need to foot the bill for developing countries to, to meet these quotas. Uh, Eastern European countries and India all want more nuclear in the mix. Um, and so the reason it struck me was just uh, how difficult this is. Uh, and one of the nice things, and this is the first, first COP was in 1995, so this is the 26th. I mean, we're not discussing any longer the fact of climate change or that something needs to be done. So that's progress. We're, they're, they're discussing, you know, how to get there in a reasonable manner that's not massively disruptive and doesn't, uh, you know, completely obliterate uh, developing economies and, and other economies. 
So uh, it just struck me as how hard this is going to be. It's really critical it be done. Um, but it's a, it's a really complex proposition. And there's going to be 200 representatives there in Glasgow. Uh, it's going to be a, a real chore. I'm really glad it's moving along and that it's coming up. But uh, it was uh, informative to me to see some of these concerns expressed uh, and have them submitted to the UN on, on this issue. Yeah, the timing is now. And uh, you can find that article on the Saudi U.S. Trade Group website, sustg.com. My one big interesting thing this week, Richard, is the upcoming Formula One Grand Prix in Jeddah. This isn't a sport I follow closely, but Saudi Arabia will be hosting the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix on December 5th. It's a Sunday. A full crowd of spectators will be there. The race will be run on the Jeddah Corniche circuit, which was named fastest street track on the Formula One calendar and the second longest. This week, though, the race got a little bit of negative publicity after the announcement of a dress code for attendees. The dress code, the dress code includes, quote, no excessive makeup, no transparent clothing, no clothing which rests above the knee, no mini skirt, no backless dresses, nothing which shows straps, no tight clothing and no bikinis. Richard, I think we'd have to change our outfit. Um, look, to people like you and me who have visited Saudi Arabia many times, this is actually not that shocking. Um, I think it's just interesting because it shows that Saudi Arabia, though it wants to be a tourist destination with a, with big events, is still working on reconciling those goals with a conservative culture at home. To me, Richard, it shows that authorities are still very proactive in managing the social social aspect of these big new sports sports events, which as recently as five years ago would be completely unthinkable. Uh, Saudi Arabia may want tourism, but it doesn't really want to be Las Vegas. So it's interesting mm -hmm. to sort of see this happen. It's the, the type of thing that people online make fun of, but it shows the reality of a very conservative cu culture that is changing. Um, just, just, a, just a really interesting development in advance of the Grand Prix. It is an interesting sort of dose of reality in terms of uh, local politics and, and local realities. And like you say, they don't want to be Las Vegas. And it made me think, I, are, are, is the F1 fan base, you know, do they dress particularly in revealing fashion? I don't they know. They need to because... rethink their whole wardrobe. <laughs> they don't have this issue with golf or the, or the Dakar <laughs> rally or uh, any number of other things. But it was, it was really interesting to see this. Well, it's, it's the kind of thing that if you're if you're following Saudi Arabia or if you're following the Grand Prix, it's the type of thing that 90 things can happen. And this is the one thing you're focusing on is the, the dress code as it because you think it represents something that it doesn't. Anyway, it's just it's interesting. And, and that, so that's been causing some waves this week. And, and also, you know, when you consider that uh, that Grand Prix uh, race is going to be the third in the Gulf Troika. So I think they're coming through Bahrain and then the Emirates. And um, again, you know, Saudi's reality is different. You're not going to have those uh, guidelines or restrictions in Bahrain or in the Emirates. So uh, again, another dose of what it's like to be in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And again, don't wear a bikini to a Formula One race. Um, moving on to topic one, the puzzle of U.S.-Saudi ties. Richard, you sent this article over this morning. Uh, it's on SUS tg.com from John Alterman from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, reputable DC think tank, published a commentary on the puzzle. It begins, by most accounts, the Biden administration is pleased with the results of its policy towards Saudi Arabia. But, Alterman says, the Saudis seem less satisfied. They feel the Biden team has pocketed their efforts at partnership and has given little in return. Richard, could you talk more about what's in this piece and what Alterman gets right here? 
Yeah, we'll, we're going to have to call this segment the John Alterman is smart. Um, and I, I don't know if he's smart, uh, you know, because I agree with him. You know, we, it's all about me. So, if, you know, if he's saying things that I agree with, but, I, you know, we know CSIS well. Um, we've, uh, they are a globally respected think tank, and I think they do a lot of good work. You know, our groups out of U.S. Trade Group is a small group, and we tend to partner with people. We partner with CSIS. You remember when we brought um, uh, Minister of Commerce, Dr. Majid Al-Kasabi, over mm-hmm. and uh, took him over to CSIS. But I think John hits it here. And I was going reading this, and I was nodding my head. Yes, yes. Um, and it's something that we hit, we, we emphasize all the time. And that is, you know, what do you want to see from Saudi Arabia? And are you invested in their success, the success of the country. So I am going to read this. And so you finished off, see, uh, the Saudis seem less satisfied, though. They feel a Biden team has pocketed their efforts in partnership and given a little return. Uh, the next, next thing he says, they also express wonderment that the kingdom is undergoing a deeper transformation in economics and society than any in the country's history, and it is happening at a breakneck pace. Yet their closest and most partner, important partner neither notices or cares. Common theme. You know, and, and we understand the outcry and the outrage over the Khashoggi. We understand uh, that the quagmire that Yemen is. Um, but the Saudis are saying, look what we're doing. Look what we're trying to do. Can we, can we, can we get some help here, some backup and support here? Um, let me read a couple other passages again, because I think this hits on so many things that we talk about on a regular basis, Lucian. And it's just these themes we uh, really hear over and over. Um, the, um, the 9-11 attacks shook the bargain. Growing, the growing divergence between oil security and energy security makes the future of our, the relationship even more uncertain. Saudis know this, and the government is vig- vigorously trying to change the kingdom to meet the challenges of the new century. Whether it is going about it the right way and whether it will be successful are two separate questions. What seems beyond doubt is that Saudi Arabia is in transition to, to something new. Again, referring to a common theme here, we refer to it as experiment, and, and maybe that's inappropriate, but you know, I call it an experiment because we don't know the outcome, but it's, a, it's an extraordinary experiment. And, um, and to the next thing that, that John hits, uh, while many Americans profess indifference, the United States does have an interest in facilitating the Middle East transition to more diversified economies. It has an interest too in encouraging its partners to have more open societies that will be resilient in the face of global change. Not all of Saudi Arabia's potential partners have much interest in either. For the Saudis, this will be hard work. It will take decades. The time is now to make it a central part of US strategy toward the region. And he adds, this is important not only because of Saudi Arabia, but also because the Saudis have broad influence throughout the region, throughout the Middle East, deep pockets, and a leadership that is serious about change. But the change underway in Saudi Arabia is about more than the leadership. Saudi youth are energized about redefining their country and its role in the world. Mm-hmm. So again, you can see me nodding, you know, as I'm going through reading this and going, you know, you know preach, John, because uh, I think he hits it uh, on the head. Uh, and one more thing, and I'll, and I'll finish with this. Five years ago, it was common to hear people in Washington say, we have to ensure Mohammed bin Salman succeeds. After the murder of, Jamal, murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the harassment of other critics of the leadership, a ruinous war in Yemen, and a series of other seemingly impetuous moves by the crown pinch, that sentiment has become rare. 
but is but it was but it was always correct to see it as important to U.S. interests that Saudi Arabia succeeds as well as other countries in the region. Um, so the point being is, is as as the Saudis are concerned about you know uh, the U.S. looking elsewhere and 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 uh, getting diverted from its focus on the Middle East, uh, and they're also concerned that the you know with oil independence on the part of the U.S. Uh, that some of these ties may be compromised. Uh, and what John is saying, what we all, uh, we say repeatedly is that, look, the Saudi Arabia's success is now tied into other things, and, and, and the U.S. should be supportive of this. And I, I should add, uh, the current minister of uh, investment, Khaled Al-Fala, a former head of Aramco, former head of Ministry of uh, Energy head, is in the U.S. right now. He's he was just spoke at the Milken Institute. He's beginning coming to the East Coast. He'll be meeting with uh, corporations, government officials, and he'll be talking about the national in, in investment uh, strategy that was just announced because the Saudis desperately want and are seeking and are trying to promote a, a regulatory environment that attracts foreign investment. So the minister, Saudi minister of investment, is in town. It's in Washington. Is in the U.S. Uh, talking about this actually, this actually thing is saying, look, get invested in what we're trying to do. We really want the U.S. as a partner. You're our preferred partner. Let's let's evolve the relationship to helping us succeed in what we're trying to succeed at, which is the next generation, the next step. So anyway, again, this is John Alterman is smart, you know, as as the 966 uh, perceives it. But I thought it was an interesting article, and mostly again because it's it it echoes so much of what we talk about. Indeed. And you're going to get, uh, when you subscribe to Sue Stig's news review, which is our daily newsletter, sustg.com slash the review. If you go there and subscribe, you're going to get articles like this sent, curated and sent to your inbox every day. That was one of the best we've seen in a while. Um, so that's, that's great. Yeah. Alfala is in, in DC right now. He visited our friends at the U S chamber of commerce yesterday. Um, so it's great to see him touting investment opportunities in the kingdom. Moving on to topic two, Saudi Arabia's stock market, the Tadawul, hits a 15-year high, 15 years. On Tuesday of this week, Saudi stocks, Saudi stocks reached a more than 15-year high. Those gains, contained, those gains continued excuse me, through the rest of the week, and the Tadawul ended even higher on Thursday. Cha-ching. Investors remain <laughs> optimistic in the region. According to Reuters, equities are buoyed by the good earnings season and the high level of energy prices. As always, strong oil prices are lending a helping hand. Crude oil exports rose in August for a fourth consecutive month to the highest since January 2021. The Tadawul is eyeing an IPO of its own in the coming months, Richard, as you know, and in a new, Bloomberg today, in a new report today in Bloomberg uh, revealed that the Tadawul is in talks to recast its small cap market called Nomu as a hub for Middle East uh, startups and the Middle East growing startup industry. The goal there is to, to position Nomu in such a way that it encourages tech companies to raise money on the exchange's smaller market instead of doing so in private funding rounds. Richard, lots going on with the Saudi stock market these days. Yeah, that was a nice report. And, you know, stocks go up and down, but the Saudis have to be pleased. As you say, oil revenue is up. Uh, they're getting their fiscal house in, in order. Um, uh, private sector uh, activity is jumping. Um, they seem to have come out of COVID in, in good shape and uh, they're showing really responsible governors. But what, what struck me about that was that 15 year. Now, um, this is an example of, of fruits enjoyed 
after a long period of labor. And uh, 15 years ago, it was 2006. And in, in, in February 2006, the Saudi stock market crashed. They call it Black February. <clears throat> and uh, at that point, the Saudi stock market was uh, about 75 companies listed, maybe 600 billion market cap. But it was a bit of a wild west. It was uh, not a lot of institutional investors. A lot of uh, uh, it had gone up to twenty thousand, and it keep going up. People were mortgaging their houses, selling their cars, they're quitting their jobs to day trade. It was a bubble, uh, and in February two thousand six, it crashed. Um, uh, went down to eight thousand uh, trillion dollars worth of value loss. Trillion trillion. I'm sorry, trillion. Uh, in, in Saudi Riyals, which is about 267 billion US. Uh, King Abdullah had to step in. It was catastrophic for a lot of people. And uh, as a matter of fact, the Tadawul, that we know it, was established the next year in 2007. And another thing that most people don't know is Tadawul is owned completely by the uh, public investment fund, so by the PIF. Um, but so so they came in, they stepped in and said, OK, this is the Wild West. This isn't helpful to anybody and much less our citizens. Uh, we need to we need to get best practices. We need to, re, uh, you know, meet all international uh, regulations and, and accounting and reporting practices and everything involved in making this a, a reliable bourse. And uh, so they've gone about that. So this was 2006, 2007. So. So uh, 15 years later, and let's go to 2019. 2019, they're there after, again, really trying to dot their I's and cross their T's and meet all expectations in terms of international investors. Um, they're accepted into the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, uh, FTSE, Standard & Poor's, same deal. Um, they're 200-plus um, companies listed. Uh, over $2 trillion uh, market cap. Uh, I think it's ninth uh, in the world in terms of uh, market size, in terms of stock markets. So it's a top 10. So have you seen, so this is, this is nice, but this is coming from, from a flaming wreckage in 06, where they realized they had to uh, really settle this out and straighten it up and that they, in order to get what they wanted to get, which is here, being a, 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 a viable conduit for uh, capital markets, people to do IPOs and, and foreign investment, which you and I, you and I couldn't invest in Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, eight years ago, 10 years ago, we can now, uh, and a lot of people can. So it's, um, and also, as you say, you know, they're now in a position to, at the end of the year, to IPO for around $4 billion. So it's, it's not only is in and of itself, just this point in time, it's great. 15 year high. But when you look what that happened, what, what the situation was 15 years ago, it's, uh, it's got to be uh, satisfying for the Saudis to uh, set a goal and come to this point where they've done a, a very good job in terms of making it an attractive place to invest. Absolutely. And the TASI is up 38% year to date. So doing very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we should be invested. There. We should be invested. <laughs> Topic three, the rising cost of solar in Saudi Arabia. Richard, lots of things cost more today than they did at the start of this year. But according to a report this week in Bloomberg, that's also true for solar panels for Saudi Arabia's renewable projects. 
The report says that bid prices to develop Saudi Arabia's latest round of solar projects rose substantially from earlier this year. This underscores how soaring panel costs are hitting the renewable energy industry. China's Jinko Solar Holding Company Limited, a mouthful, submitted the lowest shortlisted <laughs> offer to generate electricity from a 300 megawatt plant, according to a document on the Saudi Ministry of Energy's website. At $1.48 a kilowatt hour, it was around 40% above a contract of $1.04 per kilowatt hour that Saudi Arabia signed early in 2021, saying it was the lowest tariff on record globally. Driving the rise in cost, according to the article, is the cost of polysilicon, a material used in PV solar panels, which has risen to its highest since April 2019, partly due to factory shutdowns in China. Richard, is this a concern for Saudi Arabia's big solar plants? No. I mean, in general, <clears throat> um, solar energy, the level last cost of energy for solar power has dropped 80% over the last decade. Actually, even uh, and it's dropping. It dropped even more since 2018. It's the technology is, is is suppressing the price considerably, um, and this too will pass. Um, what concerns me? So so this is a good thing, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna flip here because typically I'll say um, Saudi Arabia has these great and grand projections and plans and and that sort of thing, and. And uh, what you need to do is not necessarily hold them to achieving to, to the letter what they've what they've uh, boasted about or what they've claimed, but the direction in which they're heading. Uh, and this is one uh, where I kind of like to see them pick out the pace on uh, renewable energy, especially solar power. Uh, this is so it, this this is these bids amount. There's four bids. They amount to 1.2 gigawatts. Right now, Saudi Arabia's uh, renewable power from solar power is about 455 megawatts, not even a gigawatt, uh, well less than 1% of their energy mix. And, and you've spoken in the past about you know, the, the solar hours and how, how uh, attractive Saudi Arabia is to solar power. Um, so I'd like to see them pick up the pace, to be honest. Uh, this, a lot of these things are coming out of a, a white paper that was uh, published by the King Abdullah Center for Atomic and Renewable Energy in 2013, which, which talked about the, uh, the solar power industry, why it would work, and laid out each of these, you know, th this process, you know, a series of bids and that sort of thing. Uh, but at that time, this is 2013. Uh, they were saying, all right, we project, you know, five gigawatts by 2018 and 24 by 2020. So, uh, again, this is, I'm not, I'm not interested in saying you said this, so you have to reach these numbers. That's not the point. The point is, is I think, I think they should be farther along than even when this comes on, this will be, if you add the 1.2 gigawatts and they have other things, um, Aqua Power says there's six six gigawatts in the in the pipeline, but let's move it along. Saudi Arabia needs this uh, needs this uh, renewable energy option. They have the uh, they have the the technology. They have a tremendous environment. I'd like to see them pick up the pace. One of the questions I get asked a lot personally, um, just a random. Uh, just somebody asking me a question about Saudi Arabia, a lot of times that question is, why isn't Saudi Arabia leaning more into solar energy if it's so sunny all year round there and 
it's and they're making all these other investments in a Tesla rival Lucid and there's a battery play there. I mean, it's clearly the future for them. I agree. What's the what's the holdup? Why aren't they moving faster? It's a question I can't really answer because it just seems very obvious. Build more solar plants. But there's a lot of things going on here. And I think that um, this article from Bloomberg is really interesting because it sort of shows the the sausage being made on how they're getting the pricing set for these big plants. And I think it's always hard for us, if you're not on the inside, to understand the the, the pragmatic aspects of doing this. Um, one of the interesting things, Aqua, who is the Saudi, again, 50% owned by uh, PIF and uh, is a co-bidder in, in three of these new ones and is right at the heart of everything in terms of renewable energy. They've committed to spend $10 billion over the next decade or so on renewable energy, but they're actually investing as much outside as inside. It looks like, I mean, they, they, they have a, they put $800 million into the largest uh, solar plant in uh, solar uh, photovoltaic solar power system in South, uh, South Africa. They're doing a similar, not as large, 100 plus million in Egypt, Morocco and Jordan. So they're looking abroad and it's good. They're developing their expertise. They're building a name. Uh, but uh, like I said, and you just said, you know, people had, why aren't, why aren't they moving further and faster along domestically? Um, so uh, that's sort of where I am. I think this is great. It's glad it's moving along. It seems to be a very orderly process. Uh, I'd like to turbocharge it a little bit. Yeah, we'd love to see that. One thing that our listeners and viewers will also love to see is we have an interview out this week with Lena Almaina, who is absolutely fantastic. Uh, great conversation with her about starting a business in Saudi Arabia in 2006, uh, her time on the Shura Council, and what family means to her. All, uh, it's just an absolutely wonderful interview. She uh, takes the call with us from Jeddah United in Jeddah. Um, just make sure you listen to that uh, or watch it on our YouTube channel because it's just it's a fascinating conversation. And Richard, we will be having many fascinating conversations, not just with each other, but with other <laughs> interview subjects going forward. So if you do subscribe to us, you'll get those delivered automatically to your phone or your desktop uh, via email, however you want to subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts and including YouTube, subscribe and then you won't have to track them down or be reminded by me when I, I mentioned them. So I think that wraps it up for this week. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucian.